So I've entitled the message, Noah and the Flood, this morning. It says that he was a preacher of righteousness in a time of judgment. And the story of of Noah is is both a story of stubbornness and sadness, right? Because there was a a stubborn people that wouldn't hear the message of God and great sadness because the entirety of the earth, except for uh, the seven that were were on the ark with Noah, I believe there was uh, seven. And... uh, you know, it's, it's amazing to me that the entire world was wiped away. And that had to have been a time of great sadness for God. It had to have been a time of, of great sadness for Noah and his family. And, uh, but at the same time, it was a story of, of one of salvation and a fresh start for those who were, who were on the earth. Those, those seven made a brand new start. But the interesting thing about the story of Noah, about this time of judgment and, and preaching by Noah, is how much it parallels what we're going through today, what we're seeing even today in our world right now. And I'm not talking about the rain this weekend. I'm talking about the environment that we're living in. You see, in Noah's day, the earth was corrupt. In Genesis 6.12, it says, And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. You know what? In our day, there's not one that's righteous either. Nothing's changed since then. The earth is still corrupt. Romans 3, 9-10 through 10 says, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. We're still living today in the same situation. We're living in a corrupt world. In Noah's day, see if this sounds familiar. In, in Noah's day, People didn't want anything to do with God. They were all caught up in their own wants and desires. The ins and outs of daily life was their focus. In Matthew 24, 38-39, it says, For as in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. It says they were eating and drinking, they were living their lives. They were going about thinking nothing was going to change. And not that, that living your life, not that marrying and giving and marrying and eating and drinking, none of those things are, are a sin. How many of we have to eat and drink to survive? Uh, getting married and giving in marriage is part of life. But the problem was is that God was nowhere to be found. It was just their life that they were thinking about. You know, in our day, we have the same thing. Everybody heard of the American dream? That becomes the focus of people's lives. Not God, but what they can do for their life. They can get that nice house and the nice job and the, you know, the two-story house with the, with the white picket fence out front. I know that's a, a weird stuff for us, us here in Arizona. You don't see many picket fences, but uh, the expression stands, I think. Also in Noah's day, God made provision for salvation. Genesis 6.18 says, But I will establish, establish my covenant with you when you shall come into the ark. You, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. God made provision for Noah and his family to be saved through this coming judgment. In our day, God has made provision for us as well. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that, that none who believe in him should perish but would have everlasting life. God has made provision for us today in our time of, of upcoming judgment the same as God made provision for Noah. In Noah's day, salvation was preached. We're going to look at today, we're going to see that Noah preached for 120 years 
as a herald of righteousness. He preached righteousness for 120 years as he was building this ark. Even before he had his sons, when he was commissioned to build this ark, he was preaching and telling them about it. And it doesn't talk about what exactly happened, but we know that nobody else got on the ark except for his family. So no one heard his message. And in our day, we're supposed to proclaim the gospel as well. The, the great commission is that we would go out and preach the gospel and make disciples. And in Noah's day, the answer was faith. Trust in God and obeying Him. Obeying His commandments. And that's what Noah did. Noah trusted God and did what he asked. Even what he was asked to do seemed impossible and probably highly unlikely. In our day, the answer is faith as well. In Romans 10.9 it says, Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. The answer today is trusting what God's Word says is true and obeying His commandments. And in Noah's day, the provision of God provided for a fresh start. We see that the earth started out brand new with just their family starting it. It was a fresh start for, for, for men altogether as all the sin and evilness had been wiped away. It was a fresh start. And in our day, the provision of God provides for us a fresh start as well because it's not that we're just forgiven, but our old self is taken away and he's dead and buried with Christ and we're given a brand new spirit inside of us. And we have a fresh start made in the image of just like how Adam had no past. We have no past. We are made brand new and we get a fresh start. So as I've given you kind of an overview, let's go ahead and get started with the Scriptures. In Genesis 6-9 it says, These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. And Noah walked with God. The Bible says that Noah was a righteous and blameless man. And I find this interesting because as we know that the rest of the world was definitely not in his time. Matter of fact, the rest of the world was so bad that God destroyed the entirety of the world except for Noah. God, even the animals, he just wiped everything out. He's like, you know what, we're starting fresh. We're starting from scratch. This didn't work out. They're not, uh, they're not trusting me and looking to me like they should. The world is evil and corrupt. But in the midst of all of this, Noah is considered righteous and blameless. Now consider the implications of that. Noah's living in this terrible world. Yet he's still able to stand upright. He's still able to live blamelessly. See, the things that we can take away from that is, one, we know that Noah had a relationship with God. It says that he, he, Noah walked with God. He had a relationship with God, and that impacted every single thing, think, every single thing that he did in his life. He put God before everything else when the rest of the world was putting everything else before God. He called God his Lord. And we're going to see that Noah was obedient to what he asked. He, it wasn't just lip service, but Noah believed who God was. He believed what he said. And not only that, he showed it by living his life in such a way that he was obedient to God and that he could be considered blameless. Two, we find that it's possible to be and live righteously in an unrighteous world. No matter what's going on in the world around us. In other words, just because everyone else is doing it doesn't mean that we have to do it. You know, one of the 
the, the biggest arguments I made as a kid when I was growing up when I wanted to do something and my parents wouldn't let me. And I find it funny because, you know, it's one of the same arguments that my kids make to me. But so-and-so gets to do it. But these other people do it. Everybody's doing it. You never down. Everybody's doing it. I've made that argument in my life before, too. You didn't know that you guys weren't the only ones, huh? But how many people know that that doesn't mean it's okay just because everybody's doing it? Just because everybody else says something's not the truth doesn't mean it's not. Just because they don't believe in something, it doesn't mean that it's not real. The Word of God is true regardless of what everybody else is doing, what everybody else is thinking. And just because the consensus is one thing doesn't change the truth of the Word of God. And that's what was happening. Everybody else must have thought, no, it was crazy. Why are you living this way? Look, it doesn't matter what we do. Look, everything is fine until one day it wasn't. Until one day they realized that they should have spent more time learning how to swim. Not so much time doing these crazy things. Maybe some time in the pool. A few laps wouldn't hurt them. We also see that he was a righteous man because of faith. To be righteous is to be in right standing before God. That's what it's talking about there, that he was a righteous man. But then it says he was blameless in his generation. And what does that mean? See, the righteousness was how he stood before God. And we're going to look a little bit later and see that, that uh, he was a man of faith. And that's where his righteousness comes from. But we also see that he was blameless before his generation. And what that is, is his standing before other men. It's the, the, the righteousness is, is what we're done on the inside. It's what's done on the inside of us with Jesus Christ. When he comes inside of you, he makes you righteous. But being blameless before others is the outward effect of your life that that produces. He lived a blameless life because he was righteous. You know, we look at this and, and it may just be, be the way they worded it, but I look at this and I see that first it says Noah was a righteous man. Then it says he was blameless in his generation. And I, I think that the word order is probably important because in order to live a blameless life, you already have to be righteous. You can't become righteous by living blamelessly. You see, he wasn't a man of dead faith. You guys remember James said that faith without works is dead? He was living proof that he had faith. It wasn't just lip service for Noah. He was righteous but he was blameless in his generation. Before men, he was blameless. And they saw what was going on. There was evidence of his faith. Just like in our life, righteousness comes first. And works are evidence of our righteousness. And not our good works makes us righteousness. The same was true in Noah's day. You know, this plan of God, we think that it just came with Jesus, but it's always been the, always been the case. Righteous, right standing before God has always been a result of faith. And that right standing impacts how we live our lives. Amen? So, like I said, <clears throat> the righteousness came first by faith and not the other way around. And one question people might ask is, man, it sounds like you're getting a lot out of this one simple verse. I don't see what you're, where you're getting at from all this, Pastor. Well, how can you say that that's the way it goes? And like I said, the first thing that I noticed was word order. I think that's important. But also, if you look in the book of Hebrews, in Hebrews 11.7, it says, By faith, Noah, 
being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of righteousness that comes by faith. It wasn't me that said it. Fortunately, there's other scriptures that back me up. And it was the same for Abraham who came after, who came after Noah. Remember that uh, Abraham in Genesis 15.6, it says, And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. This has always been the plan of God since even before Abraham. We like to look at and say that, that Abraham was the first because that's when, the, when the, the nation of Israel started was through Abraham. But this plan of God has always been, even in the days of Noah, he was righteous. The righteousness that comes by faith, like in Hebrews 11.7. Praise God. Then in Genesis 6, 12 through 6, it says, And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark, cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. Its height, 50 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark on its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. Now, when I read this, our first instinct, and especially if you talk to people that are non-believers, their first instinct is to say, look how terrible God is. He's going to kill all those people. But before we can use this to proclaim how terrible God is, we have to recognize that, one, this is before Jesus. Today, The sin of the world was paid for by Jesus. The Bible says that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't just die for those who were going to get saved. It was while we were all sinners, Christ died for us. The sin of the world has been taken care of in Jesus. But this is before that time. And God is a just God. That's why Jesus had to pay the prices, because God is a just God. He can't just turn us back on this stuff. He's a just God, and justice must be served. And we all know that the penalty for sin is death. There is a price to be paid. Now we can rest assured today that God is not going to send another flood. One, he promised as much. In Genesis 8.21 it says, And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. You know, I'm reading this just now and I recognize that, that God took care of this. God, God <clears throat> extracted justice. The penalty for sin is death, no matter how you put it. And I recognize that God did this, a fresh start. But even then, he recognizes that the intention of a man's heart is evil from his youth. You know, God made a fresh start, but he recognized, you know what? Something else is going to have to be done, which is why Jesus came. Because flood after flood is not going to fix the problem. And he promised that he would never do it again. To be sure, there is a judgment coming. But as Christian, the word says that we will not be judged. Because why? Because Jesus was judged in our place. And I thank God for that. I thank God that my salvation is not based on the things that I've done or how good I've lived my life. Because let's face it, I've made a lot of mistakes. Plenty of them made well after I was a Christian. But the payment has been paid in Jesus. That's the act of a loving God. So that you wouldn't have to pay the price 
He paid the price for you. Next, we begin to look at this story, and God comes to Noah, and he says, all right, here's what's going to happen. I need you to build a boat. Have you ever been asked to do something by God that you just thought there was no way you could accomplish it? Just think how Noah felt. Some have said that before the flood, there wasn't even any rain. It had never rained before the flood, that the moisture was deposited with the morning dew. Now, whether that's true or not, some have said it, some have said it's not. Some claim that there's, there's no scientific model that can explain uh, <clears throat> uh, the earth, how the earth could survive before the flood without rain. And, and plenty have, have dissected into the scripture to show how, yes, it says this. And other people said, no, if you read the scripture this way, you're misinterpreting it. And I don't know. And the truth be told, it's not really all that important. But what I do know for sure is that a flood of this magnitude had never been seen before. Whether they knew what rain was or not, whether they, they, they'd seen this before, they'd never seen nothing like this. And God comes to him and says, Hey, I need you. something you've never seen happen before. Beyond your imagination is going to happen. I can't even explain it to you correctly because there's nothing in your limited experience or knowledge that you can compare this to is coming and you need to be ready. How is Noah supposed to take that? You know, it's like when we listened to Dean Braxton and said, I'm trying to describe heaven, but you're going to hear a lot of, it was like this, because there's nothing in your experience and in your knowledge that can fully explain what I'm trying to tell you. So God saw Noah, this is coming, and I need you to build an ark. And this was something that, I don't know for sure, the Bible doesn't say what Noah did before the flood. We can assume because after the flood he became uh, a farmer. He, 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 planted, he was a, a, planted a vineyard afterwards and, and took care of that. We can probably assume that he did something similar beforehand. But the Bible doesn't say what he did exactly. But what I can probably tell you without a doubt is that he wasn't a boat builder. This wasn't what he did for a living. We can't even say where this actually happened because when this flood came, the earth was changed so much. We don't know what the earth looked like before this flood came. Like I said, he was asked to build a boat. And we're not talking like you see on Survivor where they're, they're carving out a little wooden canoe out of wood or strapping rafts together. This thing is massive. You know, it's one of those things that's really hard for us, especially as Americans, to understand because how many of you know what a cubit is? I guess technically it's the distance, about 18 inches, the distance between a man's tip of his middle finger to his elbow. It's about 18 inches. And that's what we consider it today. It could have quite possibly been larger in those days. We're not 100% sure, but say we go with a conservative estimate that it's 18 inches. Then we can start to, to get an idea of how big this thing actually was because none of us knows what a cubit is. It's like when somebody from uh, another country tries to disclaim how far something is in kilometers. I'm like... Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't even, I can't see a kilometer in my head. I, I can get a mile. That's what we're used to. So the same thing happens when we hear these numbers. So let's, let's, uh, let's turn it into feet and inches for us. So this thing was going to be 450 feet long, minimum. 75 feet wide and 45 feet high. Now, when I read this, I start to get an idea. Four, I mean, that's big. But even still, not many things in my life are 450 feet wide or 450 feet long, so I still have a tough time putting size to this ark. So here's some things we can compare it to in this earth. 
It was taller than a three-story building. It had a total deck area the size of 36 lawn tennis courts or 20 basketball courts. 36 basketball courts would fit on the deck. It was as long as a football field, goalpost to goalpost, and about as wide as a football field as well. If you stood the ark up on its end, it would have been as tall as the Great Pyramid of, of Giza. It was big enough to contain 522 standard U.S. railroad cars. We all have the trains running by here. We know how bigger. 522 of those cars would fit in there. Proportionally, its length is 10 times its height, 6 times its width. In fact, the ark has the same proportions as a modern-day cargo ship. In 1993, a Korean study headed by Dr. Son Wong Hong found no fault with the ark dimensions, and he said such a vessel would have been seaworthy and been able to handle waves as high as 100 feet. God's blueprints were all right. God knew what he was doing. Go figure. So, probably a farmer, definitely wasn't a shipbuilder, and God said, something that you've never seen is coming your way. I can't even describe it to you because you don't have any point of reference, and I need you to build this boat that's going to be beyond your imagination. God, you know, that makes me think like, you know what? God just asked me to pastor a church. It doesn't seem quite so bad in light of that. (laughs) You know, God's got plans for your life. And sometimes it feels like, God, how can I do this? But he's been asking people to do this, to work like this. That's just how God does things. It has been that way all throughout scriptures when you see him do stuff like this. I actually think God calls us to do the things that we're worst at because there's no way we can claim that it was of our own doing. You know, I've often wondered, I've, I've, I've served on worship teams most of my life in churches, but I've never felt called to be a worship leader. And when I was a kid, I said I would never be a pastor. I told somebody that, that I, you know, I think it's great, but I, I could never do that. Just, I couldn't do it. And God's like, yeah, something you're not good at, that's what I'm going to have you do. And something you're good at, you know, I'm, I, I'm, I'm a decent singer. I can play the guitar now. I'm not called to be a worship leader. I do it here now because we don't have somebody else. I do it because I have to, but that's not my calling. And I think it's because even in worship times that I've had, pride's something I've struggled with because I know I can sing. I've always been able to sing, and, and that gets in the way of just serving God with what I have. Whereas doing this, I have no clue how to do this. I'm just trusting God and, and doing what He's asking me to do and standing against fears and struggles on my way for it. And you know who's doing it? It's God. It's not me. And I think that's why God has us do things that we might not ter- be terribly good at, stuff that we might be worse at. And when you look at, at Moses... God asked Moses to lead the people, and at this point, he was unliked. His people were like, what are you going to, when he tried to break up a fight between his people, like, what are you going to murder me like you did the Egyptians? So they didn't really care for Moses. Not only that, he was living with the Pharaoh for a while, so they probably weren't happy about that. And then on top of that, he probably had a speech impediment, and he couldn't speak. But God still has him lead a people. You know, we'd never see a president like that today. You know, one of the the things that people talk about President Obama the most is his ability to speak to people, his ability to convey his ideas. He's a great speaker. Moses wasn't. 
Gideon was considered the lowest of his family, and his family was the lowest of all the families in the area. But God called him a mighty warrior. David was thought of so low that he wasn't even called in from the fields when Elijah was coming to pick a king from his family to anoint the next. He was thought of so low they didn't even call him in. Many of you are going to do things which you never thought possible because God called you to do it, and He's going to give you the strength, the provision, and the ability to do what He's called you. Amen? In Genesis six seventeen through 22 it says, For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, and which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die, but I will establish my covenant with you. You shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, your sons' wives with you, and of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be made male and female. They shall be male and female, of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort shall come in to you and keep them alive. Also take them with you every sort of food that is eaten, store it up, and it shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this, and he did all that God commanded him. So now we find that if building a boat's not enough, I need you to be a zookeeper too. And I need you to, to, to get two of every animal. And actually, elsewhere in, in the scriptures it says that he took seven pairs of every clean animal. Plus two of every, everything else. Gather and take two of everything, every animal on the earth. You know, when we look at the Sunday school uh, pictures of this, and they show, you know, the, the cute giraffe sticking out of the top of the boat, and it's just an adorable little thing, but you didn't just take the cute and cuddly, cuddly animals. He wasn't just responsible for the, the, the panda bears and the giraffes and the puppies, but, you know, he had to bring on the bugs and the spiders and the, the snakes Rats, the small, the large. There was going to be aggressive animals. There was passive animals. He had to bring them all. And I don't know how many exactly were on that boat. There's been arguments left and right about how many were on the boat. Would it be enough to carry them all? Yada, yada, yada. People are arguing left and right about this stuff. And I don't know, the Bible says that he took two of every animal, so that's what I'm going to believe. And truthfully, there's been plenty of studies to show that that would have been perfectly possible. But anyway, I don't know how many there were, but I know there was a lot. And we also know that he brought food on the boat to feed him. So now, he's got to take care of all these animals. And since we know he brought food on the boat, how many know that means there's going to be poop on the boat? I don't know how many there were, but that was a lot of poop. And he had to shovel that, they had to take... This, you know, the him, his three sons and their wives, they had to take care of all this stuff. How many know that God comes to you and says, you know what, I need you to build a boat, I need you to take care of these animals, and yeah, I'm going to need you to pick up after them too. How many know sometimes working for God is not always clean and easy? There's going to be some rough stuff. Think about that. Think about that the next time you have to complain about what God has you to do. At least you weren't scooping out tons of poop every day. But we see that Noah trusted God, and God made a covenant with him. He says that you shall come into the ark with your son, your wife, and your son's wives with him, 
and you're going to survive. I make a covenant with you. I will take care of you. See, that's the greatest part about God when he asks you to do something. He just doesn't, you know, just tell you what he wants you to do, smack you on the butt and tell you on your way. But he's with you the whole time. God is always with you. And God made a covenant with him. Much like the one that that God made with, with Abraham and much like the one made with us. Salvation, righteousness, our inheritance, it's all a result with faith in him. We trusted him. And we trust Him fully. And because of that, because Noah trusted Him, God was true to His promise. And the same goes for us. And then we also see that what I find interesting is, is this, we'll look at the timeline a little bit in a, in a little bit, but when God is, is commissioning Noah with this task, He doesn't even have sons yet. He doesn't even have His sons yet. And God's saying, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have them be on the boat with you. So that means that this promise was extended to his sons because of Noah. The blessing was ushered into Noah, and because of, of Noah, his children were ushered in too. And this is not because they got a free pass. Just like today, if you're a Christian, your kids don't get a free pass. They have to make the very same decision that you make as well. They have to have their very own faith as well. But it's because they were trained in righteousness by their father. You guys know who Enoch was? It's one of two people in the Bible that didn't die. Went straight up to be with God. Elijah was the other one. But Enoch was Noah's great-grandfather. And he was one of the two, like I said, one of the two people that didn't experience death. And in the scripture it says that he walked with God as well. In Genesis 5.24 it says, Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. No, Enoch didn't die. He just went up to be with God. One of two people. And he fathered Methuselah, who is Noah's grandfather, and Methuselah, that's a hard word to say, fathered Lamech, who fathered Noah. And the implication is that they raised the children in the way that they should go, just like we should raise our children in the way that they should go. But they raised them. And we know that this happened because Enoch walked with God. And through the generations, we find that Noah walked with God as well. And we are tasked as fathers and mothers with the same responsibility to raise our children in the way that they should go so that just like us, they will walk with God as well. I've heard uh, arguments made, especially Christian parents, drives me crazy when they argue, you know what, I'm a Christian, I believe, but you know, I'm going to let my kids make their own decision. I'm not going to try to influence them. They need to make their own decision. And the truth is, that's ridiculous and it's dangerous at the same time. Basically, you're letting the world, because the world's going to influence your children. The world's going to try to tell them how to believe. And if you don't, they're going to be influenced by that. It's our responsibility to make sure that our kids are walking with the Lord, to teach them. Ultimately, the decision is theirs. Ultimately, they have to make the choice. But, man, you need to be teaching them along the way. Amen? So then we find out that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. And this is where I'm going to talk about, like I said, we're going to find out uh, where the, the 120 years comes from. Because if you actually read through Genesis 6 and 7, you don't hear that, it, nowhere does it say Noah preached for 120 years. You may have heard that Noah preached for 120 years, and I'm going to tell you how we, we get to that. But uh, if you're like me, you read this and you were surprised. It doesn't actually say that in so many words. But we do know that Noah preached 
righteousness for the 120 years before the flood comes because we do have other numbers in the Bible to back that up. In Genesis 6.3, it says, And the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. This is the point that God made the decision to send the flood to the earth. And he said, They have 120 years left. He said, Their days are going to be numbered to 120 years. So we know that at the point that God made the decision, there was 120 years until the flood came. We also know that the flood came when Noah was, was uh, 600 years old. So that means that he was about 480 years old when God came to him. He made the decision says, Noah, I want you to build the ark because a flood's coming. So he's about 480 years old. He's got to preach for 120. He doesn't have his, his first kid till after he's 500 years old, so his kids aren't even there yet. And he has his three boys between his 500 and 600th birthday. So even his kids, when they get on this boat, they're probably somewhere between 50 and 100 years old when they get on the boat. But that's where we get the 120 years from because we have 120 years from when God makes a decision to when the flood comes. But then you can say, well, wait a minute. Okay, that's all well and good. I see where you're getting those numbers from. But it doesn't say anywhere that he preached. And that's true. In Genesis, it doesn't say anywhere that he preached. But if you read other scriptures, if we go a little bit farther, and we read right here in 2 Peter 2.5, it says, If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, Noah and seven others, it says that he was a herald of righteousness. What's a herald? A herald's a preacher. They're, 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 they're giving a message. So we know that Noah was a preacher of righteousness, and he had to be preaching to somebody. So this 120 years, Noah's preaching to the people, trying to say, come on, guys, something's coming. Turn back to God. I got room for you on the boat. But we know that the only people that got on the boat with Noah were seven others. His three boys and their wives, his wife and Noah. He preached for 120 years and not a single person repented and came back to God. It kind of, in some ways, it, it makes you feel a little bit better about preaching to people and not seeing quite as much fruit as you'd like either. But the truth is, our success, our, our standing before God is not determined by our numerical success. It's not our responsibility to make people believe. It wasn't Noah's responsibility to make people believe, but it was his responsibility to give them the opportunity. And he did. He was a preacher of righteousness. And we don't know what happened when he was preaching. This is really all we got. We know that he was, he was a preacher, a herald of righteousness. Other translations use the word preacher and not herald which is why I keep saying that. But uh, we don't know what they did. We don't know how they acted. You know, when we, when, when we preach, a lot of preachers get up and say that he was ridiculed and he was mocked. The Bible doesn't say that, but uh, we can't know for sure, but we can look at how people act today. And as we've seen, not a whole lot's changed since back then and today. And we know that today people ridicule, people mock, people persecute, probably the same stuff that he was dealing with. I imagine that they relegated his warning to a fairy tale. Not that different from what we see today. I was uh, uh, reading an article yesterday about an atheist who 
who was saying what he would say if he saw God. And basically he was going to accuse and attack God for all the sickness in the world and all this stuff. And, and then I'm reading the comments of this thing, and in some ways all I want to do is get on there and, and, and preach. And on the other hand, like it's just uh, not worth it. It's not worth it. But nonetheless, I'm reading some of these comments, and, and what I kept seeing was this, you know, your fairy tale God. They thought it was a fairy tale. And I imagine that when Noah's trying to tell them about this stuff, that he's, they're getting the same thing. He's t- trying to tell them about a, a flood that's coming, that they have no frame of reference to even understand what, that, what was coming. Their limited knowledge, limited experience, can even let them fathom what was about to happen, even though Noah must have been telling them that, that it's coming. It's much like Peter described about those of us in the last days. In 2 Peter 3, 4, it says, They will say, Where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Basically, we've not seen this before. We've not seen the end. We've not seen the, the change. So how do we know what's going to happen in the future? And they just blew it off. And people are doing that today. Like I said in the beginning, the story is one of stubbornness and pain. You know, this, they were stubborn because they wouldn't hear what Noah had to say. And they ended up paying the price in the end. The same is going to happen today. People aren't hearing the message being preached. They're not receiving the forgiveness that is offered freely. They're being stubborn and they're storing up for themselves wrath in the last day. And there's sadness in that. You know, we should never look at the lost, the people that are walking without Jesus and, and think less of them or think down on them and, or somehow lift ourselves up high because we have Jesus and they don't. We should hurt for them and want to share what we have with them. And you know, Noah was a man who walked with God. I imagine that, that it hurt every single day when he talked to his friends, his family, people in his town, his countrymen. You know, it's easy for us to think that Noah didn't know any of these people, but he, he may not have known a lot of them, but he knew a lot of them that lived near him, around him. These were his friends. People he knew, people he, he walked alongside with every day. It had to have been painful. And some people would like to imagine God standing up there administering justice with no effect on him, but I know that these were people that God loved. And there was sorrow in his heart when this happened. It's true, it was was just, it had to be done, but it didn't hurt any less. Like when your children do something they shouldn't and you have to punish them, as much as they'd like to think otherwise, we don't enjoy punishing our children. Because it doesn't hurt us. I know with my son, especially when he's on a roll, and it's like every time I turn around, he's doing something wrong, you just begin to hurt when you have to punish him because you don't want him to go through that pain. And God's the same way. He doesn't want these people to perish. And just like today, you know, the Bible says that, that, that God is not slow like some would think is slow, but He's being patient with us, giving everybody an opportunity. Matthew twenty-eight eighteen through 20 says, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. You know what? We have the same charge that Noah had. We need to go out in the world and preach the gospel. 
I think it's something that, that even as we go forward, we need to start doing better as a church. We need to start making sure that uh, we're getting people to these outreaches, that when we have these outreaches, we're sharing the love of Christ. We need to start doing, I, you know, I, I feel a, a, a pressure to, to a conviction to do other stuff. We need to find a way to reach people in this city, both personally as individuals and as corporately as a church as well, because we are called to preach the gospel and make disciples. Now, I thank God that I think some things will get easier as we get into a building. We'll have different responses. But just because we have a building coming up, it doesn't mean that we don't have to do anything now, that we don't have the responsibility now. We do. And the cry of our heart should be the same as Noah, saying, Here I am, send me. <clears throat> if you go back a couple of verses that we were looking at in Genesis 6, 22, it says, Noah did this, and he did all that God commanded. Noah said, here I am, send me. I'll do what you ask, even if it seems crazy, even if it seems hard. And this should be the same attitude of our heart when we say, go and preach the gospel, even if it seems hard, even if it might make us feel uncomfortable, we have to be willing to tell people about Jesus. Because if we don't, they're not going to make it. And just like Noah, our success isn't measured by our numbers. You know, it's one thing that we like to talk about how many people got saved. And that's amazing when people do, but that's not what our success is measured by. Our success is measured, did you do what I asked you to do? Like Noah, no one came with Noah, but that doesn't mean Noah was unsuccessful. He did what he was supposed to do. His responsibility wasn't to make them believe, and our responsibility is not either. But our responsibility is to tell them. Because if they don't hear, they don't even have the opportunity to believe. So then we continue on in the book of, of Genesis, chapter 7, verses 17 through 24. It says, the flood, con- the flood continued 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. And waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth. And the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. And the waters prevailed above the mountains, covered them 15 cubits deep. And all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind. And everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. And they were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. So it rained for five months. I was thinking like, man, it's rained for the last three days straight. This is rough. Five months, just pure rain, nonstop. Until it went 15 feet. If we do some simple math, what is that? 15 times 18? 32 and a half feet? 22 and a half feet of water. That's a lot of water. Above the highest mountain. Think how deep it was in the valleys. Think how deep it was in the, what's that canal that we have? Uh, uh, the deepest part of the ocean, something like a mile deep. Yeah, it was even deeper there. Can you imagine? You see, just when you thought that you only had to trust God while you were doing the work, how many of you got to keep on trusting God even after you've done what He's asked you to do? Because sometimes the results don't come right away. God said, I make a covenant with you. You get on the ark, you're going to be saved. 
And Noah, I imagine Noah's like, wait a minute, you didn't say I was going to have to be on this thing tossing and turning for five months. And actually we find out that's just how long it rained. We had to wait for the water to recede. So it was uh, one year and about 11 days, I think, is what the Scripture says it was, is that he was on that boat. You know, he had to, to weather the storm and get through it. You know what, we're going to go through times in our life where we have to weather storms. Even though God's with us, you're going to have to weather the storm. You know, Noah survived the flood, but it doesn't mean he didn't experience the flood. I mean, can you imagine what it would have been like to be on there? You know, and it's like being out in the ocean. Have you ever seen shows where they show them out in the ocean and they look every which way and they don't see any land? But at least there's the hope of seeing land at some point. For them, there is no land. There's not even the hope of land. They just got to trust God to get through this. And when we step out in faith, sometimes the water is going to rise. Even if we've done everything that God said, the water is going to rise and we're going to have to continue to trust God that He's going to take us where He said He was going to take us. And it may not be pleasant the whole time. You know, on top of all the poop that they're shoveling out every day, how many know that I bet you some of these animals got seasick too? This probably wasn't a pleasant boat ride. But God was with them and they made it to the end. And they dealt with what came, the hard stuff, the tough stuff. Could you imagine being uh, stuck with your sister on a, on a boat with nowhere to go for a year straight? I bet things were tough. <laughs> you know, and I imagine that at some point there was, there was moments of fear and doubt in Noah's life in the lives of his sons. I imagine they're like, did we hear God right? Because it doesn't seem like the rain is stopping. It doesn't seem like things are changing. This was a long time to be out on the water. <laughs> I wonder if when they got off the boat, you know, the, when you get on a boat for a long time and you step on dry land and you're all wobbly, I wonder how long that took to get rid of. But you know what? Like I said, they probably experienced fear and doubt. And the same thing's going to happen in your life as you express faith towards God and you walk. You might feel pangs of fear, pangs, moments of doubt. But the question is, is your faith muscle stronger than your doubt muscle or your fear muscle? Are you going to, to feel that come on you and let it take over your life and control your life? Or are you going to say, you know what, I'm choosing not to feel fear. I'm choosing not to doubt, but to trust God. Because ultimately, that's what they had to do to make it through this. They could have given up. But they didn't. They continued to trust God. And we know that a year later, it says in the 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month, and we know when this all started, the flood started in Noah's 600th year. So it was one year later. It says the waters were dried from the earth. And then Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. And I'm reading Genesis 8, 13-19. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth dried out. So one year later, the earth dries out. And God said to Noah, Go out from the ark, you and your wife, your sons, and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with, all, with you all of all flesh, birds, animals, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, every bird, everything that moves on the earth, they went out by families from the ark. 
after one year of trusting God, even when it seemed like things were probably hopeless, the water fully recedes and they get off the boat. God was faithful. In the end, God lived up to His promise. You see, with God, when He promises something, it's never a matter of if, but it's always a matter of when. If we will trust Him. And it may not happen as we want. How many know that if this was coming, Noah could have probably thought of a few different ways that this could have happened instead of him being stuck on a boat with all these animals for a year. But something that I've recognized in my life that is no matter how many times I try to tell God how He should do it, He never listens to me. But I also recognize that this is for the best. Because I'm not as wise as I like to think I am sometimes. You know, when we first opened the doors for this church, if I had my way, we would have had hundreds of members right off the bat and we would have got started. It would have been big and I could go full time and, and all this stuff, you know. And that's not how it happened. You know, the first day, uh, George and Anna and your, your, your children came, uh, John and Monique, and, and that's all we had for a while. Never, it didn't grow for a long time. And then we got a few new families, but that's not how I saw it going. I thought, God called me to this. This is what he wants me to do. And man, it's going to take off like a rocket. And it didn't. But I recognize now that even though my, my intentions were good, my timeline wasn't so much. I recognize now that if God had done it the way that I wanted to do it, we would have collapsed under our own weight. We wouldn't have been able to survive. Because I wasn't ready. There's no way I could have pastored a church of 100 and I'm still working on figuring it out for 20 people. <laughs> But you know what? I continue to trust God. I pressed on and we're seeing the church grow. We're getting into a building. And I thank God that it didn't happen the way I wanted it to happen because we wouldn't be where we are today, that's for sure. But we need to be a people who trust God regardless of the path that He takes us on to get where He's taking us. Because in the end, He is always faithful. He will always come clean on His promise. And we can trust His Word. Amen? In Genesis 8, 20 through 22, it says, Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered some burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. And neither will ever strike again down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, shall not cease. See, after all is done, God made a covenant with Noah on behalf of all men that he would never wipe out the entire earth again like this. You know, that's why we see the, 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 the <coughs> pardon me, that's why we see the, uh, the rainbows. The, the rainbow was a sign that God would not do this again. But you know what? The sin still had to be dealt with. God just said, I'm not doing it this way again. So he sent his son to pay the price for us. He sent his son to pay the penalty for sin. This actually, if you take a look at what happened here, you start to, to catch some of the gravity of what Jesus paid for. The last time the sin was dealt with, the entire earth was wiped out. But he sent his son to pay the price for us. God came down to earth as a man to pay the price for us. 
Because often why, when I hear that floods and natural disasters are judgment of God, it makes me cringe. Oh, God's just judging the world. God's judging America. God's judging this and that. Why would God require a double payment? If God was judging and extracting payment, then that would be him saying that Jesus wasn't enough. And if Jesus wasn't enough, then we all got problems. And we'll go ahead and end here. In Matthew twenty-five thirty-seven through 39, it says, For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. We looked at the scripture briefly earlier, but you know, when we look back at that world, and we talked about today the parallels of the, of the world in Noah's day and the world in today's day, we find that things aren't so different. In those days, they were living their lives as if nothing would ever change. Nothing could happen. They were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. They were just living their lives, much like people are doing today. Some were sinful and corrupt. Some were doing sinful things. But some were just living normal lives. But the problem is, back then, the same as the problem now is God was being taken out of everything. And we see it more and more today. God's not even allowed in our schools anymore. God is being methodically removed from every aspect of our lives, from our government, from our schools, from all of these things. And that's what was happening back then. The parallels are, are, are so similar, it's almost mind-boggling how nothing really has changed. And the truth is, like I said, the people living their lives, the things that they're doing, it's not necessarily sin. I know that marrying and giving in marriage is not a sin. But they weren't putting God there. And the truth is that if we don't do our job, if we don't answer the call of the Great Commission, if we don't share the gospel at every opportunity that we have, that just like the flood, when people are swept away with the flood, in the last days, people are going to be swept away as well. When the the Son of Man comes back, everybody's going to stand before Him. The Bible says that every knee shall bow. And it would be so much better if they did it voluntarily, of their own free will, instead of after it was way too late. Amen? So let's be a people that are going to, like Noah, be heralds of righteousness. Let's tell people about the love of God. And let's usher as many home as we can. Amen? Amen. Let's go stand to our feet.